Hey there, welcome to Groundbreakers, a bi-weekly podcast that explores transformations in where, how, and why we work, and the intersection of DEIB within our workplaces and spaces. I'm your host, Shelley Wright, Chief Diversity Officer at Unispace. With each episode of Groundbreakers, I'll be talking to fascinating people, all of them groundbreakers in their industries. We won't have all of the answers, but we'll have some provocative and pretty entertaining conversations. We're going to have a lot of fun. We have an exciting show for y'all today. We'll be talking to Kurt Bardella. He is the creator and publisher of The Morning Hangover, political advisor, journalist, media guru. Welcome to Groundbreakers, Kurt. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Shelley. How's, uh, now, just full disclosure, I don't know what day this episode will drop, but I'm telling you today we're recording on a Friday and it feels good that it's Friday. How about you, Kurt? Well, for us here in Washington, this particular week, we're about to enter into what we call Nerd Prom Week. Washington Correspondence uh, Association uh, has their annual dinner. And it is the, uh, especially given the last couple of years, we haven't done it uh, because of COVID. So this is the the social event of the year. Um, Nerd Prom. It really is that. And everything starts with everyone under the sun has parties, NBC, CBS, you know, talent agencies like UTA, yeah. um, Vice, you name it. So it's going to be a a marathon of social events, uh, of which I'm hardly ready for because honestly, I haven't done anything in a couple of years. Yeah. So like the uh, the stamina may not quite be there yet. I totally get that. For number one, I feel even luckier that we have you on Groundbreakers today on the eve of the nerd prom slash political <laughs> Super Bowl, as it were. Um, but, you know, to your point about getting back in the saddle and, and doing events like this, I was in the office this past week and I'm exhausted. Like yeah. just going to it, like just putting pants on. That's like hard stuff. The Herculean effort of just like having to do your hair, having to wear clothes and actual shoes and not just walking around in like Lululemon comfy clothes. It's it's right. a, it's a big adjustment. No, no doubt. Well, we wish you a lot of luck and hope it goes well. Um, uh, let me give our listeners a little background on you. As I mentioned, Kurt is the creator and publisher of The Morning Hangover, which is a country music media platform. He's an advisor to the Democratic National Committee and the DCCC, and he's an LA Times and USA Today contributor and often appears, like I said, on a lot of uh, cable news and, and uh, some network news as well. He's been a strategic communications advisor advisor and media relations consultant for more than two decades. He's worked with local, state, and federal government officials as well as a broader as well as a broad array of private enterprises, trade associations, and national media corporations. Throughout his career, Kurt has advised politicians, CEOs, entertainers, can't wait to hear more about that, and media figures during crisis situations and campaigns. That's a lot, Kurt. What don't you do? Sleep, apparently. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it's really it's it's something living kind of this dual life of you know half by day I'm you know political advisor you know MSNBC commentator type person and then by night I'm I'm at a country music concert um, right which really is couldn't get for, which is way more fun by the way uh, especially in this world that we live in right now over the past couple of years but it's. Uh, you know, I, I'm very lucky. My hobbies are my job, and uh, yeah, I, I don't yeah. think you can ask for anything better in life than getting paid to do what you would do for free. 
Here, here, Kurt. I mean, I share kind of that, like, uh, by day and by night thing. You know, I'm a, I'm a musician, but also, you know, in the, in the corporate space now. So, and we'll, we'll get into all, all, all of that. I want to start here, though. Although you spent your first few years of life in Rochester, New York, mm-hmm. you're pretty much a California guy. Uh, yeah. Escondido? Yeah, grew up, grew up. Uh, we moved there when I was 10. So my real formative years where I really kind of came into myself uh, was in, in, in Southern California and in, in San Diego County, Escondido specifically. Um, and, I, you know, I kind of feel like I'm like the perfect blend really of like East and West Coast. Um, you know, now, I mean, I've been in Washington, D.C. since 06, but before that, I spent almost all of my time in California. Um, and so I, I feel like I have kind of this type A personality that, that really is from like the East Coast side of things. Yeah. But my approach to life. It's just very chill. Um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a, I'm a no drama guy. I just kind of go about life and assume that things will work out one way or the other. No need to stress. And that's definitely the, the Southern California influence. Yeah. And you, do you think you got that from your folks? I mean, what we're, uh, you, typically we kind of learn these behaviors, right? Um, do you think you got that kind of chill, laid back thing from your folks? You know, I think it was honestly just almost more environmental. Uh, you know, I, now that I live particularly in DC, I can tell you, it's like the, the, the entire vibe of the East coast is so very different than that of the West coast. And, right. um, you know, it's, it's a tangible sensation when you walk through both of those, those worlds. And, you know, more than anything, I just think it, it really was environmental than any one person or, yeah. or relatives influence. Uh, just like everybody, generally speaking in, in SoCal is just very chill. Yeah. And yeah. very relaxed. And and why wouldn't you be? It's 72 and sunny every day. That's right. That's right. I mean, you know, we we like to complain about L.A. traffic. You know, I, I live in New York City. And when I go to L.A., you know, I get stuck in some traffic and it's really easy to kind of trash talk the traffic. But then every morning you get up and it's perfect and it's beautiful. And there are moments when I'm like, I really could, I could live here. This could this could easily happen. I could become a, a, a California gal. Did you always know you could do anything? So it you do have an interesting CV in that you are, you know, crisis management, talking head on the TV, um, media strategist. I mean, we can talk about your your early career as as a, an advisor, a political advisor um, out there in California. But did you always um, were your parents industrious in this way? Like they kind of carved their own path. What did they do? You know, I grew up, uh, you know very poor um in in upstate new york uh you know lived in what would be considered you know a rough neighborhood where there was crime and drugs you know my parents both worked two jobs um you know while also going to school and so i was kind of really almost by necessity really left to my own devices um you know i've always had you know I, i went to an elementary school i went to catholic school which there are a lot of rules and yeah. procedures and the way things are done. And that I, I always had issues with that. Yeah, you know, I remember my, my, my report card growing up would always have on one side, you know, good grades, A's and all that. But on the other side, there'd be these comments, which would be disruptive in class, lack self-control, talks back. Right. Uh, and, and, that, and that part of me has never changed. I've always uh, kind of bucked the system that way and, and yeah. you know, charted my own course. Um, so I just kind of, it's, it's interesting because I just think it's just who I've always been. And, and I can't think of any particular reason why that would be, um, right. you know, it's kind of one of those like nature versus nurture. And it's like, sure. I just, I, like, I am 
however I am. You know, I was adopted. You know, it's like my, my parents were not my biological parents. Right. And so, uh, you know, what, whatever, whatever is in me, it, it's been there since the beginning. Yeah, I mean, your teachers on that on that right side, that margin of your report card opposite your your grades, they they could have easily, you know, disruptive, you know, maybe you know, a little obstinate. They could have easily drawn a straight line to um, political advisor. <laughs> Talking head. I mean, yeah. you're now paid to do all of those things that that were pointed out as um, you know perhaps things you shouldn't have been doing. So, I mean, anybody who knew me. Probably at any point in my life, whether I was five or 15, would not be surprised at all about how I turned out. The country music thing would surprise them probably, but everything else wouldn't. Yeah, it surprises me. And again, we're going <laughs> to dig into that. I'm fascinated by it. Um, you know, speaking of California and the country music piece, I, I assume you are a Merle Haggard Buck Owens fan, being a, a SoCal guy. You know, I actually had the chance to uh, work in Bakersfield, you know, the birthplace of that mm -hmm. side of country music. And and got to meet Buck Owens a handful of times, actually. Um, and so my first real uh, exposure to kind of that old old country western, back when it really was country western, yeah. was that Bakersfield sound of Buck Owens and Merle Haggard. Love it. Yeah, Bakersfield. Did you, I'm sure you went to the Crystal Palace, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff there. Uh, Buck was a, a a good pal to many of us, and uh, <laughs> what an you know what a fascinating guy as well because he was. You know, he was Buck Owens, but he he was also a media uh, mogul. Um, oh yeah, and you know, very so. entrepreneurial. Before, I mean, that's the thing. It's like now you go to Nashville on Broadway, and everyone under the sun has their own bar. You know, Al Dean, Luke Bryan, Dirk Bentley, Blake Shelton. Buck's the original man. That's you right. Know, he, He's the OG. The Crystal Palace, like in Bakersfield, that he was the first. You're right, and the radio stations in Arizona, and mm -hmm. and you know how you know. I'm sure we could. I could talk about Buck Owens and Don Rich all day long, um, but we'll move on. I want to know, Kurt, what was your first job? My first job was at the uh, San Diego Wild Animal Park in the summer, working at one of the guest shops that they have there, uh, and it was nice. a fun job. I tell you, it was great because all of our, uh, my friend group that year uh, from high school, we all got jobs there. And so it was just a blast. I mean, the work at a theme park uh, when you're, you know, 15, 16 years old with your it's buddies. Like yeah, it really was. And the great thing, it's like, because you're working there, like the benefits, you get free passes to Disneyland, the SeaWorld, to Magic Mountain, all of it. So it was a lot of fun. Oh, that's great. That's great. What would you do with your first paycheck? Do you remember? Oh, man, I don't remember. I probably spent it on something Probably CDs at like Sam Goody or the Warehouse to date myself here. Right. Let's just say it, Buck Owens CDs. That's you know <laughs> we're we're going to take a little poetic license here. Um, I want to talk about your your early days in California. You worked for um, a couple of members of the California state legislature, and you worked for Brian Bilbray. Um, yeah. Yeah. So inter interesting guy. Um, immigration. You know he he leaned. Very right on immigration, as you know. Um, did you did you all at all ever feel kind of at odds with yourself? Being you know you're you're not you're not straight up California white guy. Did right. you ever feel at odds um, uh, internally you know, back, about that? Back then, no. Like here's the thing. Brian is such an interesting cat because this guy is, in some ways, one of the most liberal people I you'll you'll ever meet. Uh, you know, he came up as the mayor of a coastal city called Imperial Beach. Uh, he mm -hmm. was an environmentalist. Um, oh, really? I'm a huge environmentalist. He, 
you know, was all about protecting our coasts and our water for obvious reason, being this, you know, you know, he, as he would say, just a, 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 a white trash surfer kid growing up. Um, and so he had this kind of duality in that way politically, because he really was one of the most, you know, champions of, yeah. you know, uh, of conservation. I mean, he had the support of the Surfrider Foundation when he ran for Congress. Um, oh, that's and, cool. And he was just, a, a, honestly, just a, a great guy. Uh, and just the most gregarious personality, very unfailingly kind. He would get he this, and he was a lifeguard. He would he would literally give you the shirt off his back if if yeah. he needed it. Um, and a great person to work for. Uh, I got to say, treated his staff everybody with with respect. Um, and then the, on the immigration side, it's like for him, you know, there were some things that I thought made sense. Uh, you know, you know, immigration is very different depending on where you live. Yeah. When you live in a border city like we do in, in Southern California, uh, you know, the, the just the, the human cost, the economic cost of immigration is, is viewed very differently. And at that time, and, and he, he would talk about it's like, listen, when we go to an emergency room in our neck of the woods, you know, the entire population there is essentially illegal immigrants. And, you know, right. he would pose a question, is it right that they get service that everybody else has to pay for? Is it right that you have to wait in line behind them? Like, it's like, okay, like that, when you put it that way, that brings up some interesting conversations. Um, You know, I think that uh, for him and knowing him and and his heart, I don't think he was coming from a place of racism or, or wanting to divide. uh, Unlike most of today's Republican party, I would say like he was coming from a very different perspective as someone who, who who had rescued illegal immigrants who were drowning, I mean, like yeah. he's he's done that. Um, I so. mean, you know, you know, you make a, you make many good points, and and to the, you know, that was two two thousand six, I believe, when yeah. when you were working with him, that was a long time ago. Very and, long time ago. And and you know the kind of the the divide between a re, a Republican at that time and a Republican right now, you know, could. It it couldn't be more different. Um, I wanna I wanna add. You mentioned something about the duality of a person like that, and and I was thinking yesterday. I was on the train, and I was thinking about the conversation you and I were going to have today. And stay with me on this, but I I see a commonality in country music and and politics, and and here's how it's there's a bifurcated kind of nature of it, right? So. A lot of, especially today's Republicans, right? They're they're banging the they're banning books and they're banging the drum, you know, uh, against trans people and the LGBTQ mm-hmm. community. Um, but there are also some of the folks who are going to, you know, same sex weddings on the weekend. Mm-hmm. And so, if you look at country music, and again, we can we can dig dig in deeply on this maybe later in the show if you'd like. But when you, you know, I've had a lot of folks after I came out, they they said, well, country music's not, you know, it's it's not homophobic. Like so and so on Music Row, they're supportive. They posted on their LinkedIn or their Facebook or their Twitter in support of LGBTQ folks. But what I see that it, I see that there is a a consumer of country music, but then there are the people who are kind of uh, running the business mm-hmm. and the business of politics. I see, um, you know, a lot of Republicans who, again, they really don't, they're not against trans people. They don't really think gays and lesbians are tear, a tear in the moral fiber of of America, but who they're selling to, you know, eats it up. That's red meat for them. Do you, do you see where I'm going with this? And, and I'm, am I wrong? And if I'm wrong, push, push back. 
No, I think that there's, again, like you said, there, there's this duality. Uh, you know, there are artists out there who on one hand uh, present themselves as a, a certain type of political affiliation, but in their day-to-day life, like I said, like they have friends who are gay. They've supported gay artists. They, uh, you know, support diversity in, in, in their own way. But their politics doesn't really align with that, and and I think like there are a lot of people who just you know they look at what they look at politics very differently than their actual life. So many people look at politics almost like a sport, like they're just rooting for a team, like they would root yeah. for the Lakers or the Lions. That's right. And they don't really connect it back home uh, and internalize that. Like they, they they don't see when they say uh, you know thank you, Brandon. Uh, you know, at a concert, they just think it's all fun and games like chanting for doing Atlanta Braves chant. They don't connect yeah. that. Well, by doing that, you're saying it's okay to undermine the sitting president of the United States and there's all kinds of repercussions from it. They don't see it that way. Right. Um, yeah. You know, and, and there's, of course, like in politics, there's just a certain amount of pandering going on. Yeah. Um, you know, they're just shamefully, shamelessly pandering to, to, to move units and put butts in seats. And, you know, they see that as, oh, that's their job. That's what they're supposed to do, I guess. Yeah. Um, that's I, I the- wish that wasn't the case. I, I wish that we lived in a time where, and some, and we are moving closer to this, where there are a lot of artists who are very outspoken uh, on the other side of this, who are very uh, unafraid to just speak their peace, speak their truth, and let the chips fall where they, where they will. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, definitely progress happens whether whether we want it to or not, and it's good good to see it happening. Um, but I think you make a really good point that uh, there's a disconnect. Um, it's not a sport. We're not just cheering for the you know the Atlanta Braves, as you said. This is you know these are real people, and these policies affect people in um, in really profound ways. So you worked you worked for Daryl Issa. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to me about how you felt I know you weren't working for him and with him at the time of uh, at the time of access Hollywood's grab him by the um, Daryl Issa stayed on on board with in support of Donald Trump even after that how'd you how'd you feel about that and did you talk to him at that time uh no I haven't talked to him in years honestly uh, I've been very public about my disgust with the shift in his own public persona yeah. uh, to, to align himself with this iteration of the Republican Party. Um, you know, I think that's part of the reason why the, the Republican Party is in the condition that it is, is that people who do know better and who don't believe these things knowingly look the other way. And not only do they look the other way, they try to parrot what's happening and, and, and maintain political viability because of it, which, which I think is disgraceful. Yeah, I, I have no respect for any politician uh, at this point who... You know, who won't say in, in, in public what they say in private, you know, yeah. for, for, oh. all, for all the people who, you know, and that's the thing that the most American people, most Republican voters don't get. Every single one of their heroes yeah. thinks that Donald Trump is a moron. Uh, every single one of their heroes thinks that these voters are, are, are white trash. Like th- these are people who are voting for, for, for elected officials that think that they are less than what they are, yeah. um, you know, and so it's it's just so fascinating to watch people vote against their own interests, really, and align themselves with people who, you know, Donald Trump wouldn't let half these people into his own hotel. Yeah, let's talk about that. I love that you brought that up. You know, you mentioned before that you grew up poor in New York. I grew up poor in Kansas. Um, 
And and then I've spent, you know, the, the last 30 plus years of my life in the country music industry. And we go to a lot of poor places to do mm-hmm. our work. And so I have a really, you know, m- you know, maybe not the best line of sight on what the American electorate looks like and what the real American experience looks like. But it's uh, it's out there and it's real and it's hard and it's frustrating and it's exhausting. You got to think for, you know, people who who are growing up now the way that I grew up. Um, Donald Trump wouldn't step foot into their double wide for dinner. Oh. And how he has been able to otherize, you know, the elite, the educated. And, I, you know, it's really easy to do because when you just hold up, you know, a scale of two people who don't have much um, – Examples of people who have apparently everything, really easy to otherize them and demonize them. How in the world was Donald Trump able to not otherize the elites and kind of separate himself from wealth and, you know, institute, you know, nepotism? How did he do that? Uh, I, I, you know, it's something because I think the, the Republicans have made this argument that the Democratic Party is the party of elites. Yet they're the ones that are giving tax breaks to millionaires and billionaires. Uh, they've convinced Red America that yeah, they're on the side of the working man when really they're on the side of the boss man. Uh, yeah. you know, and, right. and so uh, part of this is the failure of the Democratic Party to sufficiently respond to that and build a message that pushed back on it. Really, when this all started, uh, it, it started at, at 9-11 is when a lot of this started changing. Um, people forget, you know, Bill Clinton won because he was seen as the working man's guy, mm-hmm. you know, the blue collar guy, yeah. um, just a you know kid from a town called Hope in Arkansas. And people like George H.W. Bush and, and later on, you know, Bob Dole were seen more as that country club Republican type. Yeah. And then after 9-11, that really changed. D- George W. Bush became the everyman. Never mind the fact that he came from one of the most political families in American history, uh, right. was rich uh, yeah. and, and had access to every advantage you could possibly have. Um, but we saw the Republican Party begin to wrap their identity around this idea of the American flag and so-called patriotism. Mm-hmm. And they rode that all the way to, to where we are right now in a lot of ways. I mean, when you see an American flag flying somewhere, most people assume, oh, that's a Trump house. Yeah. yeah. That's a Republican truck. That's a whatever. And, yeah, and, and, right. and, I, and I go like, how the hell did we allow, as a Democrat, the American flag to become their mascot? Like, that, yeah. that, that is just, it, it's ridiculous. Yeah, they've, 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 they've co-opted completely and entirely faith, mm-hmm. patriotism. Uh, the every man, every woman. How did they? You know, I, I, we know that that's not. There's not a truth in that, but the devil's in the details, and we we really don't care about details anymore, right. do we? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just you know, and, and part of it too is just the American people at some point decided for whatever reason, like that's that that that's how it was going to be. That's how they're going to view each party, and it always cracks me up when I see you know these people cheering on someone like a Josh Hawley or a Ted Cruz. I'm like, these guys went to Harvard, Yale. Right. Like they went to the Ivy league. They are not one of you. Yeah. Uh, like, what are you doing? But yeah, it's what it is. And now you've got uh, really great to hear you talk about a second ago. You just said, uh, we Democrats. Now 
I believe you defected from the Republican Party. Talk me through that a little bit. What happened? What was going on inside of you? That That's a big damn deal. Um, and I say that with a particular insight into what it's like to stand up uh, in the middle of a sea of people who aren't standing. Um, what happened? What You had a transformation. What happened? Well, I think, you know, I always say that I didn't leave the Republican Party. The Republican Party left me. Uh, you know, I, I, I became a Republican because in part I believe that, yeah, we, I, I believe in a, a smaller, limited government not encroaching on people's lives. I believe uh, in, in the power and, uh, of, of enterprise and, and entrepreneurship and innovation, uh, that the best solutions to the problems that we have are going to come from private enterprise, not come from, from government. I believe in oversight, accountability, transparency. And none of those things encompass what this Republican Party represents. And in fact, they represent the exact opposite. Uh, they are uh, the greatest threat to a functioning democracy that we've ever known. They don't believe in checks and balances. They don't respect the Constitution, uh, the balance of power. They are trying to infringe on every part of our life, whether it's what books we're allowed to read, uh, who we're allowed to love, what we're allowed to do in our homes. Uh, what we're allowed to call ourselves, hmm. um, how a business conducts itself. If they don't do what they like, they they come after you and try to penalize you by using their power. None of those embody traditional Republican values in any yeah. way. Um, and it just became very clear that the Republican Party was going to, in a direction that was ultimately going to leave it more towards authoritarianism than democracy. And and I just wanted no part of that. And so I made the decision and I did it before it was trendy, before a lot of things that have since happened, yeah. you know, have unfolded. I just knew like, this isn't me. This isn't what I want to be. And I'm just going to make a clean break. Yeah. Yeah. It took a lot of courage. Sometimes truth is the hardest thing to tell. And, 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 you know, you're not just, this isn't your hobby, right? So you're, you're in the game, you're in the business of politics. And to, you know, you made, you at the, I presume at that time, you made a 100% of your living or almost near it, mm -hmm. doing what you do and talking on TV as a Republican. Um, that's not nothing. That's a big deal. And, 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 you know, to your point earlier, how did the Democrats respond? Were you did, did, uh, did the left welcome you with open arms? Or has it been a process? You know, I was very fortunate that uh, there are a number of very high-profile people in the Democratic Party who were incredibly supportive right from you know the beginning. Uh, you know, as soon as I, uh, and I and I published a column in USA Today announcing that I was going to become a Democrat, and it was just a, a great response. People like you know Ron Klain, who now who's now the the chief of staff of the President of the United States, you know Paul Begala, long you know well-known political uh, consultant uh, who got Bill Clinton elected president and people like that who've publicly embraced me and supported me. And, uh, you know, and, and there were a lot of people just in the, even in like the MSNBC world of things who yeah. uh, were very, very supportive and, you know, put me on air, continued to give me a platform. So I was, uh, I was very fortunate that way. I had, I had a lot yeah. of support more, more than I would have thought. Yeah, I think they were honoring the move. And and speaking of Paul Begala, how much do we love that guy? He's a he's a good pal of mine too. I just love him. Likewise, uh, an unfailingly kind, generous, and and uh, you know, 
has really mastered the art too of self-deprecation. Uh, you know, he's someone that over the years I've really relied on for advice during pivotal moments in my professional life. Yeah, he's a good one. I mean, Texas as they come, but that's okay. <laughs> um, from a 2018 USA Today piece you wrote, and I think it's the one in which you kind of came out as a, as a Democrat, um, you're you wrote this, but once I stepped away from the Republican Party, its efforts to promote racism through rhetoric and policies offended me on a very personal level. I began engaging in those these issues and exploring what it means to be a minority in America. That was 2018. It's now mm-hmm. 2022. Um, is that has that been even more realized as a fear, a concern uh, in, in your mind since you wrote that? Oh, very much so. I mean, in part too, because you know, I, as an Asian American, you know, we've seen in recent years, unfortunately, a dramatic rise in hate crimes against the Asian American community. You know, yeah. We spent the better part of uh, you know a year and a half having the leader of the free world call us a virus, um, and his yeah. uh, you know acolytes adopt that type of terminology. Um, you know, it, it's uh, you know. It's a very odd sensation to know that there are certain corners of this of this place, country where you walk in and there are people who are judging you just based on what you look like. You know? and, and, you know, and even things where you, you know, every now and again, walking through the country music world, I'll go to a show and you can kind of get that look. You get that look from fans like, what's he doing here? And then later right. on, they'll give you the, oh, he's an, oh, he's an, oh, he's a good one. He's okay. Yeah. And they don't, they don't realize that. Just that inherent reflex is 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 an illustration of you know racial bias. Um, you know, so it's a uh, it's something that you know I'm certainly very cognizant of in almost every environment that I go in. Yeah, I mean, her, I I I know what those crowds look like and feel like. I've been in them and I've been looking at them from stage, and it's it's shockingly. Uh, non-diverse. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I think like you were talking b- earlier about like, it's not like these, the people in the machine of country music really don't really mean for racism to be kind of part of the calculus, but the absence of discussions pushing back on racism inherently are the problem. Right. And it wasn't and think, until, go ahead. Sorry, and I think that we're getting better. Uh, yeah. I mean, all, it's like, I, I you know, Progress is always incremental and painfully slow, but you know yeah. I look at the emergence of artists like Jimmy Allen and, and Kane Brown and and Mickey Guyton and newer artists like Tiara Breland, Shy Carter, Cat and Alex. Um, you know, it's like they're they're I've noticed certainly a a much more I think deliberate effort by labels to sign artists of color and to give them the opportunity to succeed. Um, yeah, you know, we're not there yet. We got a long way to go. Yeah, um, but it is getting better. There was a week, not that long ago, where Jimmy Allen and Kane Brown backed. They had back to back number ones. It was like I think the first time in chart history that two African Americans, yeah. you know, had back to back number ones. Um, Probably the first time in history two two uh, black artists were on the chart at the same time, right? Yeah, like, yeah especially real- at the top top level there um yeah you know, and so it's it's like you know i know i've gotten a chance to know a, a lot of the, the the music row executives who run this industry yeah you know, and it's so funny because so many of them uh the fans would be shocked are like hardcore lefty liberals 
I, this like, is what I'm saying, that bifurcation of ideology between the the manufacturer and the consumer. It's real. I mean, Rand, Mike Dungan, you just yeah, will not yeah. find him it's more. Like you, you go to Mike Dungan's Facebook page and it's like, it's like the Communist Manifesto, man. Holy right. cow. You know, and for those listening, Mike Dungan is the guy who runs the largest label in Nashville, Universal uh, Music and uh, you know, at UMG. And it's really... He's he's very public about it. You know, you know S. John Esposito, S- Espo, S- Warner, yeah, you know, Harker, Randy Scott, Goodman. I mean, th- these are like all Scott Morshetta. Like they're all yeah. like they're all progressive. I mean, yeah, it's pretty something. Yeah, my wife works for Sony, um, and she, you know, she she deals with Sony Nashville a lot, and she's. You know, at the end of a day, you know, she'll say, "Randy Goodman said to tell you hi." I'm like, you know, <laughs> you know, it, it, it they're they're there's some really great people on music row and there've been, you know, the queer community has been alive and well on music row kind of working, turning the knobs and uh, writing the songs for a long time. And and you're right. Progress is slow and it it's painfully slow when you are a part of a marginalized group, but, but it's, it's been heartening, you know, to watch, yeah. the, to I watch. Mean, the I, I look at, you know, even, you know, uh, BMG, BBR, what John Loeb has done over there where it's like, you know, he was the one who, who engineered having, Billy Ray Cyrus on the Lil Nas X track that was yeah. the biggest song of like all time. You know, he's got, you know, Blanco Brown doing some really big things. You know, he, he signed this amazing uh, Hispanic uh, artist, um, Frank Ray, who used to be a cop, you know, which is interesting. Oh, wow. uh, you know, Jimmy mm-hmm. Allen's on his label, who's obviously broken through in a big way. Um, you know, so it's, it's like, that's what we need, you know, and, yeah. and, you know, and I've talked with John about this a lot and he's told me, it's like, you know, yeah, this is important. You know, we're trying to lead by example. Um, you know, and, and, and this is also a label that has Jason Aldean on it, you know? And so it's like, you, Ooh, you those know, label and, parties at CRS must be fun. I was at um, them. It's interesting, <laughs> but it's like, you know, it's like part of me, it's like, you know, maybe the solution is having, you know, someone like a Jason Aldean be seen, you know, with a guy like Jimmy Allen and they're good. They're buds. They can hang out. It's like, you know, maybe that's what we need more of. I don't know. Um, I don't know what the solution is ultimately from a big picture societal political standpoint, but I do know that you can't beat something with nothing. And unless these th- these fans, if they don't see that type of interaction, if they don't see, you know, a Dirks Bentley embracing a TJ Osborne, if they don't see, yeah. a, you know, a duet with, you know, Kane Brown and Lauren Elena, it, they're not going to know any better. You know? Are you and, saying and so, that representation matters, Kurt? Uh, shockingly, it does. <laughs> shockingly, it does. It's like I think about a Amazing. lot of people, you know, I, I, uh, I think about – you know, I've heard these stories uh, from, you know, my wife is from Ukraine and she tells me oh, how, wow. you know, her like, you know, wow. there were places in Ukraine back in the day where you, you grew up in a village and you never saw a person of color. Like you don't even know they exist. You've never laid eyes on a person of color. So it's like, can I really blame you if you've never seen a person of color? <laughs> like, yeah. you know, yeah. conversely here in this world of, of ours, it's like, can I really fault you if you've never, if you live in Alabama or Arkansas or Oklahoma and you've never experienced diversity in any way? It's like you only know what you know. Yeah. No, that's 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 a really important point, which kind of underscores the diversity or the uh, representation matters point is that that's why 
That's why not saying something, even if you feel internally like, you know, I'm good with gay people, I'm good with the queer community and black and brown people, just being okay internally, if you have a public voice is not enough. You have to say it out loud. You have to be intentional. Um, You know, let's back up a little bit because we're talking about country music, but people might be wondering uh, if they don't know about the morning hangover, like, why is this political guy (laughs) uh, talking about country music? Can you like what, how and why and when did you start? morning hangover so you know and what is it and what is it so i became a country music fan uh truly back in 2010 uh, when just by happenstance a friend of mine had an extra ticket to a it was a jason aldean era church show and it was awesome uh you know politics aside those are two of the best at what they do best entertainers, yeah. amazing live performers and i fell in love with it that night uh and spent you know, that became my hobby. Started going to country music shows, listening to country music nonstop. Flash forward to uh, 2016, it must have been now. And I uh, I remember asking somebody in the industry that I just kind of met by happenstance, what do you guys read to know what's going on? I'd like to read it too because I love country music. And there really wasn't anything that I, I felt was fan-faced. There are a lot of industry things. But as a fan, yeah. I don't care who the program director and rally is. That doesn't matter to me. I just want to know – who's playing on good morning America or what album's right. coming out when, or who's doing something fun and cool. And, uh, and so I just kind of had this idea for a daily morning email that just gave fans insight into here's what's going on in country music today. Here's who dropped a new music video. Here's who made this announcement. Here's this new festival that's going to come to your town. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, I, I, you know, and I put it together and much to my shock, uh, music Row really took a liking to it and they started sharing it in their office and in the community and just kind of started growing from there. And, uh, you know, it, it ended up being so much more than I would have ever imagined. Um, this was just a hobby for me, something to do for fun. And it kind of ended up becoming its own enterprise. And, uh, you know, we just had, uh, just in, uh, April, the first ever, uh, morning hangover live concert event. It was called Hangover what? Fest in Vegas that, on the eve of the ACM Awards. We had 18 artists play. It was headlined by Dustin Lynch, Scotty McCreary, Hardy, Jordan Davis. Um, That's great. Sold out the House of Blues at Mandalay Bay, and it was awesome. It was just so much fun. Um, we're looking at doing another one soon in Nashville. But, uh, you know, again, as a fan, and this is why I tell people, it's like if you can make your hobby your job, you're living life the right way and That's find it. what you love and what you're passionate about. And for me, that was country music. And, uh, you know, as someone who used to sit in the lawn, uh, you know, in the cheap, literally the cheap seats at, at, at an amphitheater of 20,000 people to flash forward and be able to actually have my own show yeah, with yeah. artists that I'm, that I'm genuinely fans of, uh, it, it was, it was just, it's just amazing. That is good stuff. That is, that's really great. The ACM, that's a, that's a crazy bunch too. They, uh, they do it up well. So the eve yeah. of the ACMs, I'm sure the energy was really high. Oh, it um, was great. Speaking of Las Vegas, um, after the 2017 mass shooting in Las Vegas at a uh, country music festival, um, you wrote a column for USA Today making the case that Nashville's political attitudes toward guns are more complex and nuanced than outsiders assume. This is kind of a kind of a you know, a cousin of, of what we were talking about before. But can you talk a little bit about that relationship that country music has with guns and where where is it now in 2022 and where do you see it going yeah you know after the 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 route 91 uh you know i saw so many people in the media 
make a lot of judgments because it was at a country music fest. Now, as it turned out, that had nothing to do with any of it. I mean, really, it, the, this deranged right, lunatic just targeted a place where there's a lot of people. It wasn't because it yeah. was country music. Um, but there are a lot of people in media who are just making all these stuff. Like, look at all these songs that have guns in it. And they promote gun culture and and as if somehow that makes it okay for a mass shooting to happen. It really rubbed me the wrong way um, because, first of all, the songs that they were citing, they had no idea what they were talking about. Using the term uh, Miranda Lambert's "Gunpowder and Lead" as uh, as a citation, I'm like that song's about combating domestic violence. You have no idea what you're talking about. You have no idea what uh, you know. You've just airdropped into this conversation, having never spent one second in the in the country music world ever, and uh, it, it just annoyed me. And so I, I am my, my my I decided as someone who is fortunate enough. To walk through both the country music and the political world, that, hey, okay, I'm the only person in this world that actually knows that world, uh, that yeah. actually hangs out in that side of things, that that knows these people and these artists. So I think that you know someone should speak up, and I'm in a position to do that um, in a credible way, where I won't be pillared by the media as well. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, and, and this is the thing that you know, and I was just talking about this the other day. Uh, Democrats get this wrong sometimes. I have no issue with common sense gun reform. Any gun owner I've ever known has no issue with common sense gun reform. That's right. Everybody That's right. generally agrees we could do better, that we need to do better mm -hmm. on background checks, we need to do better when it comes to mental health and keeping track of these things. Democrats, when they talk about gun control, tend to demonize the people. And I'm going to tell you something. If you want someone to change their ways, starting up by saying you're a horrible person is probably a bad way to go. That's right. That's there right. is inherently nothing wrong. If you like to they, go and you know, hunt fish, love every day, God bless, like whatever, I don't care. Do what you want to do. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, and, and the point that I was trying to make, it's like people who sing about guns, it's like, this is a lifestyle, a heritage, something that they've learned from their father who learned it from their father who learned it from their father. There's a reason why Shows like Yellowstone have like 10 times more viewers than a show like Succession. Like they are representing a major swath of the population that fundamentally I think Democrats generally don't understand at all. Yeah. Um, and they, if you know, they need to do better about that. I've told them that you know, as someone whose job it is to give advice, I, I say yeah. I talk about this a lot. Um, but I was just really tired of seeing country music get a bad rap uh, from people who clearly had no idea what they were talking about. Yeah, no, I I think I think that's right. When when you come in so hot um with these broad characterizations about, you know, what people care about and what they don't care about, especially about guns and faith, um they shut down. They don't want to hear there's no room to have a dialogue or or a discussion. Um I think I think what is often should be talked about and and the le the far left well not just the far left the left tends to plug it into guns i think the conversation that they should be having is about toxic masculinity my wife and i are raising two um identical twin boys who will be 9 this month and you know we we do our be best to kind of knock down those um 
those opportunities around toxic masculinity when they present themselves. But then we find that they're like embedded in everything we do. You know, the the Disney Cars movie, um, one of the Cars movies, like uh, the race car approaches all of the other race cars and says, morning, ladies. You know, it's obviously a bunch of male cars, as it were. And it just like that's such a microaggression that I'm like, oh, I just, you know, it it's it's prevalent and it's uh, it it's something we got to keep working on. Well, it's like the uh, old, like, you play ball like a girl. Like, what the hell's wrong with right. that? What's wrong with doing something right. like a girl? Um, right. You, know, the you idea play soccer like, right. It's like the idea that strength belongs to a specific gender. Uh, and I'm like, let me tell you something. Women give birth. They win the strength argument right there. Kurt, you are the best groundbreakers guest of all time. Okay, speaking of toxic masculinity, I got to I gotta get like a 90-second download on Steve Bannon and I, with the secondary question, did you see the documentary Spaceship Earth by Asphere 2? I did not see the documentary. I've never watched any of the documentaries, just for my own sanity, probably at this point. Um, yeah, Steve is very much like Donald Trump. Um, he's just a promoter. He yeah. doesn't believe anything that he's saying. He doesn't have any belief or convictions of any kind. He's playing a part to enrich himself. And it's worked. Uh, uh, he, you know, this is someone who just looks at the the audience as a bunch of suckers that he can make money off of. Yeah. Um, as he did with like you know his whole build the wall campaign, which was one hundred percent a grift. It wasn't real. It was just literally taking money from people and putting it in his pocket. And I'm astounded by the by the people who fall for the act, like who think that he's one of them and that he's you know this guy's. You know, he was living on a yacht owned by a Chinese billionaire at one point. Like, what do you right. like? You can't get further away from Kansas than that, right? Right. No, so, right. you know, to me, it, it, again, it's just like Donald Trump. It's like Trump, you know, talks about the everyman, and, and but the guy lives in you know a penthouse yeah. with a gold toilet. Like, yeah, what the hell are you like? I don't know anybody in in, in Alabama that lives that way. Uh, right. How how this how how these people have been able to pull the wool over Middle America. Uh, and for them to not see that the things that you don't like about this society, they actually embody those things. Right. Privilege, wealth, power, mm -hmm. corporate interests. Yeah. That's what they are. Yeah, 100%. Do you, do you think that Steve Bannon is a smarter version of Donald Trump? Hear me out here. Uh, and that's given Donald Trump a lot of uh, credit for intelligence to even be compared to Steve Bannon. I think Steve Bannon is a really intelligent guy. Yeah. I think they both have huge gaps in ideology. They're opportunist, opportunist at their core. But do you think Steve Bannon sees Donald Trump as a, understands how to run Donald Trump because he is like that? I think that he thought he did. Um, oh. I, you know, I think that Steve saw, you know, Steve is a parasitical type creature. He attaches himself to other public figures uh, and, and, and to try to enrich himself and, and, and obtain power, I think in Trump he saw someone that he could easily steer. What, what Steve didn't understand, Steve is also like Trump an egomaniac. And the problem with Trump is he doesn't want anybody getting the spotlight other than himself because he's a narcissistic, insecure toddler. And Steve, you know, flew too close to the sun and was getting too mm. much. It was too much about Steve Bannon, uh, and 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 that created a lot of friction at the time. I mean, he was, he, you know, a, a, as I had said when Trump fired Steve, uh, he'll be back because the worst things will get for, for Trump inevitably, the mm -hmm. more he'll need someone like Steve. 
and mm-hmm. Steve will just wait in the wings until things get really bad for Trump, and then he'll make his way back. And that's exactly you called what's that. Happened. You called yeah. that early on. Oh, wow. oh yeah. You're good. You're good. All right. Okay. So um, we've this has been we've worked your hard today, Kurt. Um, I want to endeavor into a couple of fun segments. We think they're fun at Groundbreakers. The first one is what's your weird. So the question is, what's the ungoogleable fact, a factoid about you that we can't find anywhere that might surprise us? I'm a huge WWE fan. Whoa! No, yeah, didn't see that coming. Okay, all right, all right. I've been a big, been a WWE fan since I was five. And who was it, Rowdy? Right, Rowdy Gain. Who were? Who'd you like? Uh, who was your my, person? Uh, as a kid, um, you know, it's interesting. I always loved the villains. Uh, I love like Ric Flair is my favorite character probably of all time. Uh, yeah, you know, I always liked uh, characters that. You know, like the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase just cracked me up. Mr. Perfect was probably my my favorite. Um, the arrogance, the cockiness, the charisma, the I'm better than all of you, and I'm going to let you know about it and tell you about it every minute of every day just somehow appealed to me. Don't know what that says about me. Uh, my favorite my favorite wrestler right now is Roman Reigns, uh, you know, who literally- A villain? Still a, a villain? He, I mean, he, the guy literally walks around with a t-shirt that says he's in God mode, greatness on a different level. Um yeah, so it, 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 it's uh, yeah, I, but it's entertaining as all hell to me. Yeah, that's a good. What's your weird? Very well, um, <laughs> Kurt. What is in your skill set today that you do really easily? And then, what's the thing you have to work at? Um, I think for me, I've always been kind of a instinct gut player. Um, so when you know when I'm when I like when I go on TV, like I don't prepare. I don't think about it beforehand. I don't write anything down. Yeah. I, I don't read anything. I just kind of go out there and just say whatever the hell comes to my mind, whatever that might be. Yeah. So I think that's that, that's a gift uh, inherently uh, that I can yeah. do that. Um, and not sound like a quivering massive indecision on, on national television every day. Um, I think the thing that, that when, when I have to, writing columns is work for me. Um, there are times where you just sit there like, I got nothing. Like I'm going to go, like, I just, there's not, there are no words up here or, right. or you start writing you're like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, I don't know what I'm like. There's no point. I'm not going to get 700 words out of this. Like, you know, thing. So like, I think that that takes some work. Yeah. But how good is that feeling when you, when you're mid piece and you know, it's going to be good. That's the best, fe- you know, as a songwriter, yeah, that's the best a, feeling in the world. A, for me, it's like feast or famine. There are times where I can sit down and knock out something in 15 minutes and I'm done. Like, yeah. Oh, well. And yeah. then there are times where I'm like, it's been two hours. I got nothing. Nothing. All right. Good. Good. Good answers there. Um, this segment is called Fire Round. So I'm coming at you hot with five questions. Don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. Coming at, at you. Here we go. Number one, do you believe in ghosts? I believe in spirits. Okay. Number two, what do you collect? Shoes. Nice. Who's your best friend? My wife. Nice. What's your biggest fear? Snakes. Okay. Where will you be in five years? At a country music concert. (laughs) On stage or backstage? Both. Do you have a secret dream to sing a song on stage, Kurt? No, I'll or just be introducing already- somebody. I can't sing worth it. Worth it. If, if there was a surgery that I could get that can help, that can make me sing, man, I would take that. That would be amazing. But I, I can't sing worth worth anything. I'm terrible. 
that's a perfect segue into the last section, which is a, se- a segment called If I Could, I Would. So my If I Could, I Would, it's dance and draw. So yours is sing? Sing. Oh, yeah. I, w- I mean, it, 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 it's it's a shame that I can't, I don't have that talent given that, you know, I could have just, I just had my own show. I could have walked out there and done it if I wanted. I had a stage of captive audience fan. Like, I mean, I, like if anyone could jumpstart a, a music career, I totally could, except I don't have that talent. Good that you know that. Good that yes. you know that. Um, the very last question. Um, Kurt, what was your proudest career moment and what's your proudest personal moment? My proudest career moment was having my first show. Um, again, as someone who, when I started in this country music world, I actually got thrown out of a show one time uh, for being backstage when I wasn't supposed to. So to wait, go from wait, wait, whose show was it? It was what a Jason happened? Aldean show, um, and there was a big miscommunication. John Loba, the head of his label, had set me up, but his publicist had no idea, and so the publicist like saw that I was backstage and had me escorted out by the tour manager out of the building, uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is embarrassing to have happen, frankly. Um, but uh, so they go from that to the night before a major industry event. The entire industry is there uh, and and to have my own show, my own stage, my own yeah. everything was was pretty cool. That was that was definitely uh, the coolest moment of, of my professional life and one I'm very proud of. Uh, because how many people can honestly say it's like, hey, I'm a big country music fan. Flash forward, I'm having my own country music concert. Yeah, you know, that's a that, big deal. That doesn't happen very often. So that 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 definitely so. Um, and what was the second half of that question? Uh, what's your proudest personal moment? Oh, marrying my wife. Uh, the fact that I could somehow convince this person who is an extraordinary human being uh, to, to commit to spend the rest of her life with me is, uh, you know, I outkicked my coverage with her for sure. I love it. I love it. Um, thank you again, Kurt. Again, Kurt Bardella is the creator and publisher of The Morning Hangover, advisor to the DNC and DCCC, and an LA Times and USA Today contributor. Um, I'll add to that list a most wonderful guest of Groundbreakers who is welcome to come back anytime. Kurt, thank you so much for spending your time. Thanks for having me, Shelley. This was a lot of fun. Appreciate it. Happy Nerd Prom. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm going to be, I'm going to have that morning hangover tomorrow and Sunday and Monday for sure. Thanks for tuning in to Groundbreakers, y'all. It's been a pleasure. A special thanks to the behind-the-scenes folks that share my passion and vision for our Groundbreakers series. Writer and producer, Caroline Jones. Engineer, Michael Pelliquin. And the Airs Next and Unispace teams. Despite the many ways our careers and lives may differ, we are all affected by how our environments impact diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. We all have so much to learn from one another, and I appreciate you taking this ride with me. Don't forget to subscribe to Groundbreakers. Tune in and share with your colleagues, your friends, and your families. Talk soon.